Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the legislative session, which covers bills that affect the environment. That's coming up later in the program. First, your environmental headlines. Inside Clean Energy says many scenarios for averting the worst effects of climate change involve electrifying just about everything that now runs on fossil fuels and shifting to an electricity system that runs mostly on wind and solar. Can this be done reliably and with existing technologies? Yes. That's one of the main findings of the Electrification Future Study, an ambitious project of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory that started four years ago and has now issued its final report. The transformation to a highly electrified economy is an opportunity for consumers and businesses because of the potential for cost savings and for developing and selling new generations of products, said Ella Zhu, a senior modeling engineer and a co-author of the report. In a sign of changing times and shifting control in Washington, the report's introduction mentions decarbonization and climate change mitigation in its first sentence, something that would have been almost unthinkable from a national laboratory during the Trump administration. Zhu didn't comment about the partisan shift, but she did note how much the conversation about the transition to clean energy had changed since the project started in 2017. The idea of electrifying the economy is much closer to the mainstream now than it was then, she said, as is the broad understanding that a shift to renewable energy can save money as compared to using fossil fuels. The Associated Press reports that a division of Duke Energy that develops renewable energy projects plans to build a $180 million solar farm in western Indiana that would produce enough electricity to power 35,000 homes. The Hoosier Jack Solar Farm would be located on leased land in southern Vigo County and northern Sullivan County. It's been proposed by Duke Energy Renewable Solar, LLC, which is a division of Duke Energy not overseen by state regulators. The Tribune Star reports the proposed 175-megawatt solar farm would be located on 1,500 acres of reclaimed coal strip mine land currently being used for crops. Construction is slated for 2023, with power generation beginning the following year. The Energy News Network reports on the outcomes of issues considered during the recent legislative session. They conclude that net meterings phase-out and ongoing rate cases spell trouble for rooftop solar. At least three bills that would have extended net metering beyond its phase-out next year never even got hearings. Renewable advocates were disappointed that three bills to extend net metering, 
two introduced by Republicans, were never heard by the legislature. Net metering effectively ends next year in Indiana, thanks to a law passed in 2017, and a recent rate case involving utility Centerpoint Energy, formerly Vectron, creates a dismal outlook for rooftop solar. The Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission decided that the utility can calculate the credit customers get for energy contributed to the grid on an instantaneous basis rather than the monthly basis that Citizens Action Coalition, the state's own Office of Utility Consumer Counselor, and solar groups had argued for in the bitterly contested case. Under the Commission's decision, customers will essentially only get credited for solar energy sent to the grid at the exact moments when they are producing more energy than they consume. Citizens Action Coalition Executive Director Kerwin Olson said of the Commission's decision, quote, In our view, there's no netting with instantaneous netting. This will really dampen the rooftop solar industry, end quote. The state's four other major utilities will be filing their own rate cases this year, and they will likely seek instantaneous net metering as well, Olson predicted. The utility NIPSCO has already changed its request from monthly net metering to instantaneous net metering. Groups including the Indiana Distributed Energy Alliance, United Solar Neighbors, and Citizens Action Coalition are challenging the Commission's decision in court. Recently, we aired a story about a land-based fish farm in Indiana owned by Aqua Bounty that's preparing the first commercial harvest of its genetically engineered, or GE, salmon, the first GE animal raised for human consumption in the U.S. The CEO of Aqua Bounty said in a statement that she's happy to see the company, quote, reach this important milestone using science and technology to provide sustainable seafood for a growing population, end quote. But that's only part of the story. GE Salmon has serious health ramifications. The Center for Food Safety is suing the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, over its approval of the GE Salmon for consumption in the U.S., J.D. Hansen, senior policy analyst at the center, warned that the fish could have high levels of cancer-causing hormones. GE fish are engineered to have many more growth hormones than normal, so they grow faster than other salmon. Hansen said we know from the growth hormones put in beef that they can create a hormone called IGF, which increases insulin formation. Higher levels of IGF also lead to higher levels of cancer in humans. While many meat animals are placed on hormones, they are also taken off them because the FDA requires a waiting period between taking animals off hormones and feeding them to humans. In contrast, GE salmon have the hormones built into every cell so they can't be turned off. GE salmon could potentially cause more allergies than regular salmon, Hansen explained, though we can't be sure because the FDA approved GE salmon for human consumption without requiring studies of their safety in humans. What's more, wild salmon are more nutritious than GE salmon because they eat shrimp and other high-energy foods, but Aqua Bounty is feeding their salmon soy because it's cheap. 
Because the FDA doesn't require GE salmon to be labeled as such, it's impossible for consumers to know whether the salmon for sale in supermarkets are GE. Since Aqua Bounty is selling GE salmon eggs to growers in Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, it's safe to assume that salmon from those countries are GE. Consumers can pressure the FDA to enforce labeling and pressure stores to not to sell GE fish. In the U.S., Costco, Red Lobster, and other businesses have stated that they won't be selling GE salmon. It's been a tough year for Florida's manatees. Two and a half times more manatees have reportedly died so far this year than all of last year. The federal government is investigating what's been declared an unusual mortality event. Starvation due to a loss of seagrasses is what some conservation experts believe is causing the deaths. Any manatees in distress in northeast Florida go to the Jacksonville Zoo and Gardens Manatee Critical Care Center. Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission data shows more than 760 manatees have died so far this year, which comes out to more than five manatees dying a day. Quote, the biggest problem is lack of food, end quote, said Craig Miller, curator of mammals at Jacksonville Zoo and Gardens. There have been years of decreased seagrasses in the intercoastal areas. Reportedly, according to the St. John's River Water Management District, close to 60% of the seagrass in the Indian River Lagoon has disappeared since 2009 due to too much fertilizer and septic tank and road runoff in the water. A manatee named Jessup, just released last month from the Jacksonville Zoo's Manatee Critical Care Center, is the 22nd manatee they've rehabilitated. Romaine lettuce at the center helped Jessup gain almost 300 pounds in three months. Manatees weigh around 1,000 pounds. Groups that fight for clean, affordable water are speaking out in favor of President Biden's proposed budget, which would put billions of dollars into water-related projects in the Great Lakes area. The American Jobs Plan proposes millions more for the area. Laura Rubin, director of the Healing Our Waters Great Lakes Coalition, says big problems require big solutions. She said, quote, Toxic pollution continues to threaten the health of our communities. Sewage contamination continues to close our beaches. Harmful algal blooms continue to harm tourism and small businesses. And climate change is exacerbating many of these threats, especially flooding. End quote. Opponents of the Biden proposals complain about their high price tags. The coalition estimates that over the next 20 years, Indiana will need $14.6 billion to modernize wastewater and drinking water systems. The Biden plan would increase the budget for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative by $10 million and give the EPA an extra $2 billion to allow greater oversight of polluters. The American Jobs Plan would dedicate an additional $111 billion to protecting water quality over the next eight years. Chad Lord, the coalition's policy director, said it would be a big boost for environmental justice. He said, quote, These investments will help eliminate toxic lead service lines into people's homes, accelerate progress in fixing the nation's drinking water and wastewater infrastructure, 
and provide much-needed investments to help communities that have been most harmed by pollution, end quote. Following a lawsuit by the Center for Biological Diversity and its allies, federal fishery managers just proposed a change to their Pacific Salmon Fishery Plan that would help save southern resident orcas from starving. Southern resident killer whales live in the coastal ocean waters off Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and Vancouver Island in British Columbia. They eat salmon, not seals. The proposal would limit non-tribal commercial Chinook salmon fishing in years with fewer than 966,000 estimated salmon so that the critically endangered killer whales can still get enough to eat. Their population has dropped to only 74 individuals, mostly because declining salmon runs have left them without enough food. Quote, Without more protections, we'll watch southern resident killer whales continue to spiral toward extinction, end quote, said center attorney Julie Teal Simmons. Salmon and orcas in the Pacific Northwest have both been in trouble for years, so there needs to be a limit on commercial fishing. Given that the Earth is now in a mass extinction event, humans will protect some species but not others. The population of U.S. lynx is declining rapidly, and the wildcat is nearing extinction. A 2016 study estimated that as few as 54 lynx were left in Washington state, and the situation has worsened since then. The last straw would be the Forest Information Reform, or FUR, Act, which would let companies develop what little habitat the lynx have left. The FUR Act would remove a critical barrier between developers and the wilderness, which they would log, mine, and otherwise develop. If passed, the FUR Act would allow companies to all but disregard their actions' impact on wildlife habitat, accelerating the destruction of critical lynx habitat, which is driving them out of the lower 48 states. Climate change is compounding the threat facing the lynx population. Lynx are highly evolved to hunt in a snowy environment, with their wide paws giving them a competitive advantage in hunting their primary prey, the snowshoe hare, in snow-covered forests. The warming of the planet is drastically reducing the winter habitats in the U.S. that lynx need to survive. Further, a series of catastrophic forest fires in 2018, driven by the climate crisis, incinerated lynx habitats and left them uninhabitable for the next 20 to 40 years. Human development could deal the death blow to lynx. Between 7,500 and 10,000 monarch sequoias, 10% to 14% of the world's mature sequoia population, perished in California's 2020 Castle Fire, Many of these trees have lived for up to thousands of years and have survived previous wildfires. But as fire season lasts longer and fires burn hotter, naturally resistant wildlife and plants are starting to succumb to the flames. The loss is devastating. Redwood forests are efficient in removing carbon from the atmosphere and provide wildlife habit and watershed protection for farmers and communities in California. The lost numbers, derived from satellite data, will be confirmed visually when scientists are able to hike the high-elevation groves still covered in snow. The U.S. government stole treaty land belonging to the Nez Perce in Idaho 
to pave the way for gold mining in the 1860s. Today, a century and a half later, gold mining again threatens the tribe's homeland. According to Marcy Carter, a member of the tribe, gold mining is a symbol of broken promises the U.S. government made to the tribe. The Stibnite Gold Project is a proposal by Perpetua Resources, formerly Midas Gold, a Canadian company that recently moved to Idaho. The mine site is located within Nez Perce ceded territory in the headwaters of the South Fork Salmon River, a watershed that once contained one of the largest Chinook salmon runs in the Columbia River Basin. In the culturally significant area, the tribe has rights that were established by treaties with the U.S. government. The project would be one of the nation's largest gold mines. The company is prepared to extract between 4 and 5 million ounces of gold from three open pit mines during the project's life of 21 to 28 years. The site is already heavily polluted from old mining, and expanding the area and mining it again would add hundreds of millions of tons of additional mining waste and tailings. The project would necessitate storing toxic waste and treating water for many years after the company is done mining the site. The Nez Perce want the U.S. government to deny the permit to mine gold. For them, the land, fish, wildlife, and other natural resources are worth more than gold. A new set of bills in the U.K. will legally recognize animals as sentient beings for the first time ever. Among the reforms are the stopping of most live animal exports and the banning of the import of hunting trophies. The bills will cover both farm animals and pets in the UK and will ensure protections for animals outside the UK, such as bans on ivory and shark fins and possibly a ban on foie gras, which is made of goose liver. A new task force will tackle pet theft, which has become a nagging problem and the puppy boom that COVID-19 lockdowns have triggered. Electronic collars that shock pets for training will also be banned. New import rules will be changed to stop puppy smuggling. Grassroots animal welfare campaigners had urged that cages for poultry and crates for pigs be banned. Rather, their use will only be assessed and farmers will receive incentives to improve animal health and welfare through a farm subsidy program. James West, senior policy manager at Compassion in World Farming, an advocacy group, said, quote, We are also delighted that the government has confirmed it will legislate for a long-overdue ban on live imports for slaughter and fattening. It is time this cruel and unnecessary trade is finally brought to an end, end quote. A huge section of ice broke off of Antarctica this month and is now the largest iceberg in the world. Known as A-76, the colossal iceberg was first spotted by a researcher in mid-May. The U.S. National Ice Center confirmed the iceberg the next day using images from the Sentinel-1A satellite. It first broke off from the Ron Ice Shelf, which is located in Antarctica's Weddell Sea, according to the European Space Agency. The iceberg has an area of 1,668 square miles, according to Reuters, almost six times larger than New York City. A Dutch court has ordered the Royal Dutch Shell Corporation to cut its carbon pollution by 45 percent by 2030. According to Earther, quote, The suit had a fairly straightforward ask. 
If Shell could please stop destroying the planet and bring its emissions in line with the Paris Agreement, that'd be swell, end quote. It was a precedent-setting ruling that requires the company to reduce its emissions instead of making vague promises to do so, as it's done in the past. Though Shell could challenge the ruling, it can be enforced now in the 80 countries in which Shell does business. Further, the ruling makes clear that other oil companies must take responsibility for reducing emissions from their operations. The lawsuit could also set a precedent that could lead to similar suits around the world. Right before the Dutch ruling, the International Energy Agency issued a report documenting that new fossil fuel development must stop throughout the world next year if the world wants to have a chance to meet the Paris Agreement's global heating limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius. And now for our feature, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sanz talk about the legislative session, which covers bills that affect the environment. The head of the state's environmental agency said the 2021 Indiana legislative session was pretty tough for the agency. In the first meeting of the Environmental Rules Board since the end of the regular annual legislative session, Indiana Department of Environmental Management Commissioner Bruno Piggott said the agency was not pleased with some of the legislation that was approved by lawmakers. We've just emerged from what I think our agency would call a pretty tough legislative session. Piggott said two new laws would affect item directly, Public Law 160, the controversial bill that removes state protections for most state wetlands, and Public Law 100, which sets in motion the establishment of a state permitting program for coal combustion residuals, also known as coal ash. The wetlands law, formerly known as Senate Bill 389, originally sought to eliminate all state protections for Indiana's wetlands. Piggott said the intercession of members of the House of Representatives who amended the bill and former Senator and current ERB Chair Beverly Gard, who wrote an editorial warning about the effects of the legislation, helped reduce the scope of the bill. Piggott said the new law eliminates all state protections for Class 1 wetlands, which make up more than 53% of the state's 800,000 acres of wetlands and significantly reduces protections for Class II wetlands, which make up about 31% of the state's wetlands. The law keeps protections for Class III wetlands, which are legally defined as wetlands that support more than minimal wildlife or aquatic habitat or hydrologic function that have been in place since 2004. It also establishes a 14-member task force that will study wetlands and wetland mitigation strategies. Governor Eric Holcomb signed the bill into law despite vigorous opposition from a coalition of more than 100 groups, including environmental and conservation groups, regional water management authorities, local governments, and farmers. Holcomb said he weighed the bill's intent to protect property rights against limitations on land protections and believed Hoosier farmers and landowners would continue to be careful stewards of the land. Holcomb said the new state budget included more funding for land acquisition and conservation efforts. Pickett said the agency would carry out its duties notwithstanding the agency's opinion of the legislation. We were less than satisfied with the outcome of the bill. We recognized that it was different from the bill that was introduced initially and are pleased that the protections for a class three wetlands, those are wetlands that are forested wetlands, continue at, at the same rate that they were in the past. We will uh, participate in, in the task force. We appreciate all the work that's been done to support our position and our ability to testify and work with legislators to try to change the legislation. As is the case for, for every law that goes through, we are tasked with implementing the law and we will do so despite our positions regarding the law. 
Public Law 100, formerly known as Senate Bill 271, orders IDEM to establish a state coal ash permitting program, among other items. The bill was originally introduced by IDEM to remove IDEM's responsibility to assess industrial waste control facility property tax exemptions and to change where the state posted its impaired waters list. An amendment presented by Representative Mike Speedy, Vice Chair of the House Environmental Affairs Committee, rewrote the Indiana Code to allow the state to administer federal coal ash standards at the state level, like the agency does for water and air regulations. Currently, the agency does review closure plans for what we call CCR. We do, we do review those, but it was US EPA that was set to issue permits to facilities that would stay open. An amendment was added to the bill that would require IDEM to apply to run that program as opposed to US EPA. That's now a part of the law and uh, we will be applying to US EPA to establish a permitting program for uh, coal combustion residuals. Three states have applied for state coal ash permitting programs. The EPA approved programs in Georgia and Oklahoma, but only partially approved a permit application submitted by Texas. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. Brown County State Park is hosting a morning nature walk on Friday, June 11th from 9 to 9.40 a.m. Meet the naturalist at the Rally Camp parking area for a morning walk in nature. Take in the sights, sounds, and smells of nature in the morning. Ever wonder what walked or crawled or swam where you're standing millions of years ago? Have you found interesting rocks and wanted to learn more? Join park and recreation personnel at the Boathouse at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Saturday, June 12th from 2 to 3.30 to hunt for fossils. Expect a short presentation followed by a hike to Griffey Creek to scour the, the fossil beds. Bring drinking water and wear water-resistant footwear. Enjoy a bird chorus at Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Saturday, June 12th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Meet next to the swimming beach to see if you can identify the songs of several birds commonly heard singing around the lake. You will learn easy tricks to help recognize the calls. Are you batty for bats? Come to Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, June 13th from 9 to 9.45 p.m. to learn all about bats. Meet naturalist Chris at the Boat Rental Building to learn about the amazing benefits bats provide. Watch and listen for bats with a special bat sound device. Celebrate the summer solstice at Switchyard Park in Bloomington on Sunday, June 20th from 1 to 4 p.m. Enjoy the longest day of the year with live entertainment, nature-related crafts, activities and programs for all ages, and delicious food from local vendors. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 
and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to The Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.